You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. Today I'm speaking to Grace Petrie, socialist, feminist, lesbian protest singer Grace Petrie. And that's a quote of hers from a separate interview. She's very hard to define exactly what she does. We will start with uh, whether she's a folk singer or a protest singer. But she is certainly, above and over and under all of these things, a stand-up comedian. I saw her show, her debut stand-up show at the Edinburgh Festival this year, and it just blew my head off. It was so funny and so meaningful and so warm and empathic and genuine. I just loved it. I think I banged on about it in the Comedians Comedian Facebook group at the time because not only does it take to task transphobes and bigots and really talks about some genuinely fascinating issues, but it also extends this incredible empathy to the people that she is and I mean, mocking or making fun of doesn't do it justice at all. It's like there are so many. Listen, we'll get into all of this on the on the podcast, so I won't go into too much detail. But this is if you are a fan of social justice and you like stand up comedy that tackles a subject head on and not simply skewers that subject, but really takes time to understand why the people on the end of the skewering are like they are, then this is for you. There is extra content, 20-something minutes, 22 minutes of extras if you're in the Insiders Club, including Grace on how she maintains her activism in the face of criticism and in the face of despair. And we talk about some of the transferable skills between writing a protest song and writing a stand-up routine. Loads to enjoy here. Let's get stuck straight in. This is Grace Petrie. Welcome to the show, Grace Petrie. It's Hello. a joy to have you. Oh, it's and a joy I've got to you. start. This is very unusual for me. This is an unusual interview in several ways. One is that you are predominantly a musician mm. and latterly a comedian, but a proper comedian, and we'll get on to that. <laughs> um, also, we've never met in person, which is mm. yeah, that very occasionally comes up on the podcast. It's very unusual. But also, the most unusual thing is I need to start with an apology for having DM'd you as part of my, hey, I loved your show and it was great <laughs> and I'd love to have you on the podcast. I then DM'd you a suggestion for a joke 
to a to a person I'd never met, to a woman, to a comedian I'd never gigged <laughs> with. The audacity. And then I suffered a 24-hour crisis where I was like, my <laughs> God, what have I done? You can't go willy-nilly suggesting callbacks. So let me apologise, if not in person, then at least to your face. Well, allow me to assuage your conscience and say that it was a very good suggestion and it made it into the show. So Did it know, work? Yeah. Did it work? It I'm brilliant. absolved. It's brilliant. I'm yeah. absolved. Yeah, completely That absolved. concludes the interview. Re- That's yeah. all we need. <laughs> And I really appreciated you saying it as well. It was great. Yeah, I really appreciated it. Because there wasn't many, um, I, I, there wasn't like a long sort of writing and sharing process that it was, it, 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 it only really had like one and a half airings by the time I got to Edinburgh. So oh it was pretty fresh off the boat. So I appreciated it a lot. Yeah. Oh, and you sure. saw quite an early one, I think. It was fairly, I did. fairly I was, the, I was, beginning of the I was run. only in town for the, uh, the first week of the festival. I was doing a work in progress for the first week, but I hit the ground running and I may have seen you on day one or two, I think. Right, yeah. gosh, yeah. When I was really um, uh, a bag of nerves. <laughs> yeah, well, you didn't look it. You didn't look it. So we should... Like, I want to sort of start by telling you how much I loved the show. I thought it was so funny. I had no idea what to expect. I had heard of you as a sort of comedy-adjacent person. Mm. Um, and I suppose, where's a good, where is a good place to start? Because you are clearly first and foremost a singer, and I've seen you variously described as a folk singer or a protest singer. Do you... Would you call yourself either of those things or just a singer or what? Who, who are you? Who am, you who am I? Who am I? Tonight, Matthew. Um, I um, have used the term protest singer. I have used the term folk singer. I've sort of, the older that I get, the more I have come to the conclusion that neither of those things are that accurate for what I do. Um, I mean, maybe protest singer is probably guilty as charged, but um, basically I play an acoustic guitar and I sing songs and a lot of those songs deal with sort of topical, political, you know, viewpoints. And those two things combined sort of made me, I think, erroneously believe myself to be a folk singer for many years before I started actually playing in the folk scene and playing folk festivals and actually learning so much more about folk music, particularly about, you know, British folk music and sort of realised, oh, I don't really belong here at all. Um, But uh, I think protest singer is a term that I have a very love-hate relationship with. I think that it's quite a um, uh, reductive... uh, reductive label I think and and my problem with it I suppose is that like it sort of suggests that you're either making political music or you're making all other music and all other music has no political um you know element to it and I sort of think that all things have political elements to them and certainly all art have political elements to them so um I think it's sort of I, I think it's not a very useful term but unfortunately you know, we live in a world and an industry that means that you need to sort of put yourself on the right label, on the right on the right shelf in the shop so that everybody knows where to go and find you. And if people look for protest music, then they find me and I suppose that's fine. But uh, yeah, I, I think um, com- comedy adjacent performer is uh, is maybe the, the truest the truest thing that's been said about me, I think. And, and is that is the sort of the the your development your early development as a as a comedy adjacent person is that more to do with um kind of pattern between songs which then enlarged and grew and kind of you developed a, a voice and a confidence in or is it to do i know maybe the answer is both is it to do with now i haven't done as much research as i could have done because <laughs> i planned I, i've listened to some of your music i saw your show and um i in the back of my mind, I'm like, have you done like nine lessons and carols for godless yeah. people? Those kind of yeah, things. Yeah, for Fine. sure. Yeah. 
I yeah. should never have revealed that I hadn't done my research. <laughs> I should have trusted myself. But yes, yeah, so you've done kind of Robin Ince type projects whereby someone like Robin, who kind of gathers like a kind of cultural katamari, just kind of mm. get, gets people in a sort of undertow of like, well, you say something that is relevant and you have something that is mm. kind of comedy adjacent or specific or, or kind of inflected somehow. So how did you how did you come to it? What were your first kind of tentative steps in uh, becoming more comedy voiced? Well, it was it was like everything in my career. It was uh, not by design, um, but it was just kind of a, a series of things happened without any sense of planning. Really, the first thing was so I met I met Robin and I met Josie Long at the same time. I met them at Glastonbury in twenty ten, I think, and. Um, you know, they just had an election, the Tories had just got in and I sang a couple of sort of political songs and at that time, I mean, obviously both of them are like quite, well, Josie in particular, but Robin as well, very sort of politically um, engaged in their material, politically engaged comics. And at the time, and Josie, um, one after another, Josie asked me to support her on tour and then Robin asked me to support him on tour. So I ended up sort of doing over that next sort of 18 months, I ended up doing loads and loads and loads of comedy shows. Um, as a musician and um, the first time I supported Josie um, it was uh, I'll I'll never forget it because it was a real baptism of fire because um, you know I sort of came up through like music venues and you know rock clubs and like you know places where people are talking you know pubs and things where you've really got to kind of win people over I'd never really played a theatre and I'd certainly never played a comedy club and the reaction is completely different. You know, Josie would introduce me, people would clap and I'd walk on stage and then they would just fold their arms and stare at me in absolute silence. And uh, <laughs> and I wasn't used to it at all. And I just, the first night I just, you know, did my, did my songs and, uh, and uh, you know, to use, a, to use a comedy parlance, I died on my ass uh, that first night. And I remember really clearly there was a guy like in the front row who, you know, when Josie sort of brought me on, he kind of like crossed his arms and frowned and, you know, remained in that in that state for the entirety of my set. And and I just and and I just had a bad gig because, you know, they that audience had sort of come expecting one thing, you know, they'd consented to see comedy and then suddenly they were kind of had a musician sprung on them. And so the next night I just decided just to try and just speak a bit more before in between the songs just to try and and I tried to kind of open with the joke because I think particularly if you're singing political songs um or you know protest songs and I think being I mean I don't worry so much about this at, at, at this grand old age but you know this is sort of 10 years ago that I'm talking about um and I think I was quite aware that when you come out and you're like I'm a lesbian and I'm a feminist and I'm going to sing these you know really earnest left-wing socialist songs the, the, particularly in the context of a comedy show the whole thing can be a bit po-faced right it can be a bit too earnest I think and um, I don't apologize for being any of those things but I learned quite early on that if you if you make it obvious to the audience that you are actually going to laugh at yourself as well and you're happy to do that yeah. and you're willing to do that and they have permission to laugh at you and you know you're not just going to shout at them it's not just going to be a lecture there is going to be some serious stuff but like ultimately the goal is for you to have fun you know um ultimately i'm seeking to entertain you and 
I think, and, and it just went so much better that second night just because I chatted a little bit. And then over the course of the tour, I mean, I was on tour with Josie for three months and she is a master, a master of the craft of so many crafts. But I think her ability to read and work and turn a room to her advantage, I learned an enormous amount on tour with her. And so, you know, every night I was just able to sharpen it and, you know, I kind of learn okay, that intro's getting, okay, that, that gag's doing well and that one isn't and, you know, and just as we all do, I was kind of workshopping this set on tour and by the end of it, I was kind of talking as much as I was, as much as I was singing and the same, you know, the same thing again, I was lucky that I got the same kind of masterclass on tour with Robin a couple of months later and I think that really grounded me in this position that, ironically, I was then in a much stronger position in, in music and certainly in folk music because, you know, nobody's expecting jokes on that stage. So you go out and you yeah. sort of make people laugh in between songs and they really, they really laugh at a folk festival because they're really not expecting to, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, so I think, and then I, and I, also, I mean, I guess ultimately, like I just, I just found that I really enjoy it. I mean, there's nothing in the world like making a room full of people laugh. And I think I, I, I started to kind of love that as much as I was enjoying singing. So it just, you know, for my headline shows, for my tours, that just became a kind of sort of doing this hybrid thing of, of you know, the speaking for five minutes, singing for five minutes, you know, and that's, uh, you know, like it's it's um, had mixed reviews <laughs> over the years, you know, like there's, I've, I still get a lot of people who are coming up to me and saying, God, you talk a lot on stage, but um, then I kind of would have, have other people coming up and saying to me, you know, God, you're like, you're really funny. Like it it would almost work without the songs. And that's kind of where the Edinburgh show came from, I suppose, was the idea, gotcha. like, maybe I should put my money where my mouth is and stop, you know, tentatively calling myself a comedy adjacent performer and, uh, and maybe just see if I can actually do this because I love doing it, you know? So with that, before you went into the, the first tour and those first nights with Josie, was part of you, were you sort of, when she offered that you'd be her support... Did did you kind of dare yourself to do it? What was your feeling going into comedy? Had you sort of felt like that? I mean, you must have known that would be a a different environment. So was there something <laughs> that was kind of thrilling or frightening or attractive yeah. somehow about the idea of shifting into a different kind of a different sort I of mean, it's, experience? I mean, it's it's funny, Stu. You say you say you must have known. <laughs> <laughs> but I did but I was I was I was I was such an idiot when I was when I was young um and and I, I didn't really think about it I mean I loved Josie I loved her comedy before I met her I thought she was wicked and you know this was 2010 and this was kind of the front line of like um I mean not the front line but you know she was very much at the kind of um stand-up front line of like anti um conservative anti-austerity rhetoric she was like a really sort of obviously she still is but like at that time it was this first kind of wave of like left-wing comedy left-wing resistance to the government um so I was just a huge fan of her and I thought she was really cool and like you know I was gonna get to hang out with her for a couple of months and I really wanted to do it and you know she was really like I've 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 had musicians support me before so you know don't worry they're just gonna love you and to be fair you know her her audiences are just so generous and and you know for the most part just really open-hearted so they were happy for me to do anything but I think you know when I said earlier on that nothing is nothing has been by design I just mean that um you know I was just uh, everything that I've ever done uh 
I never really had, I've never had a record label. I didn't really have a management or any, you know, it, it was a, it was a real one man band for a long, long, long time. And I just wanted to gig, you know, I was, I was just gigging. I would take any gig that would be offered to me. So, you know, I would do folk festivals. I would do comedy gigs. I would do, you know, I played at a lot of protests and rallies. I played at a lot of punk shows. I played, you know, like you name it kind of thing. And, you know, at the age of 35, I don't think, that was a very good strategy, actually. But um, <laughs> but on the flip side, because I do think it sort of made me, it made me a bit of a chameleon artistically, you know what I mean? I think like I, I did feel a certain pressure if I was doing Robin Ince gig to be like, okay, I've got to try and do something that these guys are going to like and let me I try and write a song about science, you know, or, you know, I know I was asked to do the Now Show. Obviously, there's a real um, expectation there that you're going to kind of mould to the form that that, demands kind of thing and I think for a for a long time it's I sort of had this quite scattergun career and I had these songs that were kind of comedic and these songs that were really folky and these songs that were really punky and it was really hard to know where to put my own gigs on you know what I mean because it was like well do I do a theatre do I do I do an art centre do I do a you know a, a rock club like what's what's the vibe here but I think um after spending like loads and loads of years of just kind of yeah having this kind of really scattergun approach I think now that I'm at a point where I'm sort of able to put together my own tours and stuff I think it's actually I've kind of ended up accidentally with this really broad skill set and this um huge like back catalogue of songs that really I can kind of uh, you know like my I have an agent now and she says the great thing about you is that you work anywhere and I think what she means like that is that you, you you can put me on in a comedy show and there'll be something from the back catalogue that I can dredge up that'll be like, oh, this is going to make them laugh. Or you can put me on in a folk club and, you know, I'll have a folk song. And and I think it's um, it makes me quite sort of hard to quantify, I suppose, as a performer and definitely hard to sort of describe by genre. Um, but I think uh, I wouldn't change it now, I think, because I sort of accidentally ended up with this skill set that has made me able you know, to do a lot of things that maybe a lot of folk singers wouldn't be able to do. I mean, I've done a lot of work with The Guilty Feminist and The Guilty Feminist is fantastic and, you know, they've given me so much work and I love I love working with Deborah and I love being on the podcast. And I think, you know, I don't want to sound sort of self-grandizing, but I think there are maybe not too many folk singers who would be able to do quite so many episodes of a comedy podcast and be like, no, I have a different song every time and I have something relevant yeah. to say every time just because I've just gigged a lot. I've just done a lot of gigs, you know, just gigged all my it's 20s. Interesting. It's interesting your your relationship to that adaptability has changed. Like, I, I wonder if there was, I mean, it, and it does sound like there was a, an earlier kind of feeling about that adaptability that maybe it wasn't proper somehow. Like I'm, I'm pretty adaptable. Mm. I fit into lots of different. I can normally make a thing work almost anywhere. And sometimes I have felt a bit like, oh god, it's just like being a bit of a road dog, isn't it? It's like being a lounge singer yeah. if you can sing, if you can play anywhere. People, comics always go, I want to be able to play any environment, and you're like, really? Mm. Does that mean you're an artist? Mm. Does it mean you're an expert? Or is there something kind of slightly careworn about being able to turn your hand to anything? Mm. And I think it sounds like you've maybe experienced that in the early days, but now are kind of at peace with, well, no, I, I used to do anything, and that gave me the skills now that I can pick and choose from a very broad range of things. I think, yeah, I mean, I think the the thing that it gave me the most, for years and years I struggled, and still on occasion do, but it gave me just terrible imposter syndrome. 
You know what I mean? Because I felt like I was just always playing these environments where, whether it was a comedy show or a folk club or a punk gig, I was always just not quite enough of the thing that it was to be good at it. You know what I mean? Um, and in, in whose eyes? In the eyes of the audience? Or yeah. in your own eyes? Or in your kind of mediated perception of how the audience were feeling about it? I mean, all of the above. And, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and lest we forget the reviews, Stu, as well. In the, <laughs> in the eyes of the critics, I was very much... I mean, I think I just spent a lot of time... Um, you know, yeah, like I'd, I'd sort of, if I did a folk festival, then the, you know, it'd be rev- reviewed by a folk critic who would just be like, yeah, I didn't really get it. It's not really folk. And the same thing would happen in comedy. You know, I did, I did a tour with um, Josie and Johnny the Baptist a few years ago. And there was like a, you know, I remember there was this review that was like, you know, she's so funny and they're so funny. And then also there was this singer. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's fair enough because I'm not funny like those guys. But I think... um I think what I have, the way that I've made peace with it, I think, is because uh, I have settled on the conclusion that I'm able to, for the most part, make people feel good in the room, able to make people have a nice time and and feel entertained and feel like they're being offered something really authentic. And uh, and that that is the skill. I think that's something that I always thought I was cheating a bit because that's just that's well I just go into a folk club and blag it or I just go into a comedy club and blag it and and actually like it's not blagging it it's a, it's a it's a thing in and, in and of itself and I think it's a thing that you know at its core whatever kind of art you're trying to do whatever kind of music you're trying to do whether it's music or comedy you know we're trying to connect with each other aren't we at the end of the day like the audience are trying to connect with you they want to know that something sort of real is happening in the room I think what I have concluded is you know that it is it is a, it is a skill to connect with people and i think it's not just something that i it is something that i have polished and honed and i think it i often feel like well this is just something that i can do you know what i mean and it feels a bit like cheating i suppose i think that's where the imposter syndrome came from because it's like well i just go out there and just try my best to sort of be entertaining and make people feel good but actually like that is just because i didn't study for it just because i didn't you know get a degree in it it is something that I've really been working on you know for 15 years so yeah like I'm I'm pretty good at it now like I know what I'm doing even if it doesn't even if it feels very automatic because I think it's it is very automatic it's a very sort of intuitive thing so this is Grace who let's not forget for a minute that Grace's incredible upbeat kind of just the musicality of her voice is so it's so fun to listen to i really really enjoyed uh, speaking to her i think what she has to say is passionate and heartfelt and well thought out and uh, i just i'm really enamored of the way her mind works so thank you grace for coming on the show extras include uh, if you're in the insiders club but if you're not you can join at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders we will talk about the transferable skills between writing a protest song and a stand-up routine and also we will find out a bit more about how grace maintains her activism in the face of hopelessness so that is really really worth listening to uh, all of the extras from every show that has them available there at comedians comedian.com slash insiders if you are one of the insiders who has been struggling slightly with the podcast feed this is something i was made aware of recently um we are on top of it i think by the time you hear this it will be resolved market or sound has performed a huge master reset and uh, so far all of the correspondence i've had is that now everything's up and running again so apologies for uh the hundreds of hours of comment 
auto-downloading on your device. <laughs> so many apologies for that. Um, that is now dealt with. You can follow Grace Petrie on social media at Grace Petrie, and you can also go to gracepetrie.com to find out where she is playing next in either a stand-up comedy or, more likely at the moment, a musical capacity. So get there and find out more about what she's up to. Um, I will post Amber at you afterwards, but let's get back to this episode. Watching Josie kind of turn a room in that way, you know, it's okay to not be the best guitar player in the world and it's okay to not be the funniest comedian in the world and it's okay to, you know, not be all of the things that I have spent my whole career not being because I think actually people come to see something real and I think that is what I can do, you know? Yes, and it's easy to write yourself off, I suppose, with that internal kind of dialogue. It's easy to go, oh, yeah, but I'm not proper. All yeah. I do is turn up and connect with them. Yeah, big time. And I, big I never learned how to do that. And you go, no, 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 that's the thing that they're there exactly. for. Exactly. Because that's, yeah. that's the common thread, isn't it, through all of those environments and different genres and what have you that we're talking about. The common thread is you mm. and to the to your audience. Now you have sufficient, and for a while, I'm sure, have had a sufficient um a sufficiently engaged audience who are there for you and for your the story you're telling and the way that you are telling it and how you make them feel about themselves. Mm. Because at the at the show I saw in Edinburgh, and I imagine this was representative of a lot of them, they were they, they would have done anything you asked. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? They're like like, and that isn't to suggest that they weren't. Like, they weren't giving you an easy ride in terms of the laughs. Mm. They were laughing because you were funny. They weren't, you know what I mean? They, they weren't sort of rolling over for you. But they would have if you'd asked mm. them to. Because there were a lot of young women in particular in that audience. Young people and women in particular. And families. People there with their teenage daughters, I guess. Mm. Um, who were completely engaged with you and were there to... And were hanging off your every word. Mm. And so I was wondering, I mean... Partly I mean that as a compliment and as a, an observation about, wow, the people who are into you are seriously <laughs> into you. And then also I imagine there is a, a kind of, that that has a creative advantage and a creative drawback, whereby there's cer- there's a certain amount of expectation that you have to manage mm. in, in terms of like, and then there may be, maybe you get audiences who are so keen on you that it's hard to know, you know, like we've all done gigs where you work in a, a particularly warm and welcoming room like um, Old Rope in London, whereby you smash it and then afterwards you've got to go, that's all very well, but will this work in a real <laughs> club where, where they're not 100% switched on and committed yeah. comedy fans? Yeah. So do you just to talk to me a little bit about that, about your relationship with that Edinburgh audience and and how they represent your wider audience? Yeah, I mean, it, it's so interesting because that's in in many ways... That's kind of where the show came from or the desire to do the show. I mean, I, I you know, I'm incredibly lucky with, the, with the, the sort of audience that I have. And I think you're absolutely right. You know, that's that's I think what what they're very um, characteristic, I think, of a real cult fandom. Um, in the sense that, like, you know, the vast, 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 vast majority of people have never heard of me and never will. But the ones that have, they really love me, <laughs> you know. Um, and... Uh, and and they're very very dedicated and they're very committed and I think you know that is comes I'm I'm sure from a lot of the kind of DIY ethos that I I think a lot of them really have been there from the very beginning and they really know you know in, in a really kind of material way that I wouldn't have a job if it wasn't for them because you know there's never really been any kind of industry infrastructure holding me up it's only ever just been like full on you know audience support. Um, 
but obviously, you know, I sing a lot about um, sexuality and particularly sort of, well, I mean, I'm sure we'll get onto it. The show is sort of about butch lesbian identity and I've sung a lot of songs about that. And, you know, the thing about, I mean, I kind of loathe, loathe to use the term identity politics, which I think is a bit of a made up bullshit word, but um, I th- I suppose the thing about singing or making art about a particular sort of characteristic that somebody really identifies with, I think particularly talking about butchness and butch lesbian identity, which is not something that is very prevalent in art still or in culture still, that you do, you know, there are these kind of young, um, they tend to be younger sort of fans who see me sing, you know, I've got a song called Black Tie, which is kind of specifically about being a butch lesbian and and there are, the, you know, I get these kind of young queers who hear it and they feel completely seen and completely represented and then they come to shows and it is this real intense, you know, this, like, this is my story and um, it is incredible and it's so beautiful and it's so lovely and it's so humbling but as you say as an artist sometimes it is hard to know whether or not you're actually improving or actually doing anything good because these folks come and they do you know they make it so clear that they're so supportive but it is a bit like well but are you discerning would you be supportive if I came out here and did something really shit you know um and I think I felt that song Black Tie um, I wrote it in 2018 and it's like the closest thing I've ever had to a hit um, in the sense that it's kind of, it travelled much further than I expected it to and it um, appealed to far, 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 far more people than I ever could have imagined that it would. But I do feel a little bit like I, these days I'm a little bit under the shadow of it. You know, I, I feel like there's no way I could ever do a gig without singing it. Um, I worry that it's the best thing that I'm ever going to do and I did it when I was 31 and I've got a lot of years hopefully stretched ahead of me to carry on being a musician or being an artist and you know you kind of don't want to know that the best one is behind you Um, and I think all of those things just combined to feel I've just I just coming back after the pandemic I found I found this real strange disconnection to music I suppose and I was feeling really disconnected from music gigs and I really felt like I need to do something completely different and it has to be okay if people don't like it and I have to be able to do a show where I'm not going to sing that song that everyone wants me to sing and maybe I'm not going to sing anything and um and I and I think that was so it it was sort of born from that I think it was sort of born from that kind of ex, like really really intense expectation and and you know the amount of people who did say to me in the run up to Edinburgh is there really going to be no music in the show you know, and it and and I was like, you know, I, I my so it was directed by Molly Naylor, um, who's a, a wonderful storyteller and theatre maker and and uh, writer and poet and happens to be my partner as well, and uh, you know she was she was really great at just getting me to say, what's the thing that like what's the thing that would be the least comfortable to do? Because that's what you've got to do. You've just got to kind of look it in the eyes, you know? That's a fantastic tip. Yeah, that's yeah. That's like, what a, what a, if you, if you had, if someone had to direct your show in 10 seconds, mm. if someone had to direct someone's show in 10, 10 seconds, plugging that premise in Absolutely, there yeah. And, and it was, the, and it was really the, it was the, it was the golden rule that I came back to again and again in the writing process. You know, there's a line in the show that I was really, really nervous about saying. And I was, when I was, 
you know, one of the writing sessions I was sort of performing this kind of really early draft and, and it was just this, all of this woolly, woolly nonsense of like just beating around the bush, right? And she just stopped me and she was like, what is it you're trying to say? And I said this one sentence, which was something that I was really nervous about saying on stage. Um, and it was about Elliot Page coming out as trans mm. and how uh, as a lesbian when that happened, my initial reaction to it was actually, I felt Im- immediately when I heard that news, I felt a little bit sad because I felt like that was somebody who had been a role model for me. And now they weren't identifying as what I was identifying as. And that was a sad feeling. And I said that to her, I said, well, I, really, I want to say this, but there's no way I could ever say that on stage. And she just looked at me and said, you've got to say that on stage. And that, and then that ended up absolutely for me being the absolute heart of the show really is that is that that you know paragraph that that appears in and i and so i just think it was you know i'm very very grateful for an audience and like none of us would be here without one but i i guess i'm grateful i'm grateful for the opportunity to do something in edinburgh where i had it both ways i had people who were really big fans who came up to see the show and to support me and then i did have a load of folks who were just wandering by as you get in edinburgh who just didn't know who i Mm. was and didn't expect me to sing songs because they'd never heard of me before and you know to, were able to really take the show on face value and I suppose in that way I was able to feel totally you know comforted and supported by my guys in the front row who were really willing me on and then I was able to be like no I think these these kind of real punters uh think that it's good as well you know the the um that's a really good point. I, let's let's talk about let's stay with the um, the Elliot Page aspect of sure. it because I think that was one of the that was an incredibly memorable uh, part of the show and really as you say is emblematic of the thrust of the show. Which the first half of it, as I recall, the first half uh, was a sort of like it, your story, your kind of coming to terms with your sexuality, coming to terms with your identity, and what it means to be butch mm-hmm. and discovering what that means for yourself. And but the the second half, or maybe the last kind of twenty minutes of it, was I remember as I messaged you at the time. It was so, it was so. What are the words? I've got to choose the right words. It was nuanced, and it was empathetic, and it was sometimes empathetic with people who are bigoted. Mm-hmm. And you were actually trying to see it from the opposition's side, and that's something no one ever does and that's something that almost no when you see comedy comedy is so full of and I, i'm not a big arguing on twitter person i've never used the phrase straw man in an argument <laughs> you but I, lived. Yeah, I feel like no i feel like i know what one is you know um but i feel like comedy by its nature is just completely full of straw mans it's full of straw man arguments whereby people set up um an an argument that is the opposite of the thing they believe and then they knock it down. Mm-hmm. And sometimes those things are not nuanced or seen from, I don't know what I mean by empathetic, like seen from the opposition's yeah. side rather than shooting down, let's take the most extreme view of something my enemy, with my opponent would mm-hmm. say. Let's take the extreme version and then shoot down the extremist for being too extreme. Yeah. That is low-hanging fruit Mm. i'm not suggesting it's not hard to do or that it doesn't require bravery or that there might be consequences like internal bravery of getting attacked online Mm -hmm. and what have you but also it's just it's not very nuanced whereas what you did whilst being really funny was to accept the argument of the opposition and try to understand it from their point Mm. of view 
and try to answer that. And I thought I sat there like I'd been enjoying the show anyway. And then I was like, I'm going to lead the standing ovation. Oh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it really, much. you just got me because I'm like, there are loads of people here who are loving you on the level, you know, the fan yeah. level and the passerby level. And I was really thinking like, oh my God, she's thought about this <laughs> properly and has, and has invested and risked something. Thank so you. So that blew me away. So there's no question there, but talk to me about Thank that. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in some ways, um, it, I've been formulating the show in my head, I think, for years because I think... Um, yeah, I mean, it's a... It's a, it's a one of the reasons that's you're I'm glad I'm glad it, thank you it's lovely to you speak about it like that and and I, that's very much what I was trying to that's what I was going for is going for the nuanced and empathetic look from the other side and you know we're talking about the other side of um you know well transphobia basically tra- you know like transphobes having transphobic views and and trying to look at where they how they ended up there and their journey to those things and um and I think it's, I was very nervous about it because I do have quite a lot of queer people in my audience and I have a lot of trans people in my audience and I was really, my biggest fear really was that people would come and they would listen to, to that and they would think she's just giving too much to the other side, she's giving too much sympathy to the other side. But I think, you know, without self-aggrandizing too much about the, the, the how how much difference a little Edinburgh show can make I just you know I have done a lot of arguing on Twitter and I have done a lot of picking the low-hanging fruit and I have done a lot of um you know look how stupid this person is for saying this and just share that and get loads of likes and feel great about myself and what happens is I go away from Twitter having achieved nothing and the person that I've mocked has gone away from Twitter going you see they're all bastards right and 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 they have no interest in my story and they have no interest in my trauma and they have no interest in my pain and um and a lot of, you know, it's a difficult, we're living in a very difficult time with all of these things. And, and I, I have seen, I feel like I have an interesting vantage point because I have people, I have, you know, butch lesbians who sort of came up with me, who were kind of among my audience, who I knew at gigs and I knew well. And then I've seen them become completely radicalised by this agenda of transphobia that I find really bigoted and really hateful but it there's this kind of there but for the grace of god you know mm. that i'm just conscious that it, it's not it's not as difficult to end up there as i think some of us might think right and by that what i mean is like it's you know the whole point of the show is basically like it is hard to be a butch lesbian it is right and the world makes you sort of hate yourself from from you know birth basically and um and now we're kind of at this point where you know we're sort of starting to recognize in the queer community that like you know white cis gay men have kind of always had all of the power in the queer community and we're just starting to you know recognize that trans voices exist and and they're really sort of having this wonderful gorgeous moment of we're hearing a lot of trans stories and trans voices in media and on stage and stuff and that is beautiful and fantastic but I feel like there are sort of a lot of butch lesbians, cis butch lesbians who are kind of being told, you know, you've had your time, your time is over. And they didn't really. They kind of never had their time. Like gay men had their time. But gay men and lesbians have very different needs. And um, so I think, I don't know, I, I think it's 
my I think the straw man thing is a is a is a good thing to bring up here because I think one of the reasons that I think that our discourse is rotting about this and so many other things you know we saw it happen with Brexit we sort of saw it happen with like vaccines we saw it we're seeing it happen with so many things is that you know things become so polarized that it's like you know, Brexit is a great example. I didn't understand Brexit, but I understood that I didn't want to be on the side as, uh, on the side of the fascists, right? So as soon as the fascists were on one side, I was like, well, I clearly have to be Remain, right? Now, I voted Remain. I, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I did enough research to properly understand the implications of that referendum. I don't think that we should actually have been given a vote on it because I think I would hazard a guess that most people didn't do all of the research that they should have done. But I think we're in this position where okay, the guys on that side, not all of them, but there are some really terrible guys on that side. And I need to make it so clear that I'm not on the side of those terrible guys. And I feel like that is really what's happened with, you know, with transphobia, but also things that oh, mm-hmm. aren't even necessarily sort of hate-filled transphobia. You know, like they're not they're not people having hatred of trans people. They're just people feeling a bit like, I'm worried about my place in the world because the world is changing and I and the place that I always understood to be my place feels like it's shrinking or it's disappearing. And what I struggle with in terms of the the expectation that I as a, a trans ally and someone who's been a real trans rights activist for many years, the expectation that I need to denounce them all as though they're equally hateful, right? And we all know that there are like real hateful transphobes. There's loads of them, you know. But also I do think there are people who are winnable still. I think there are people who are not at that extreme end. And I think we're not gonna we're not gonna win them over by just being like, well, you're just as bad as, you know, this insane radicalized person who's spending eight hours a day sending abuse to trans people online, right? You know, like there are there are degrees of nuance in the in this in this thing there's it's a spectrum isn't it you know and i think my aim with the show was to try and access those people who are you know they're over the line into transphobia but they're not very far over the line and i think if you know instead of saying you know why you why you're such a bigot and we hate you and you know i mean i you know i said um quite early on in the show quite early on in the run Somebody who seemed to be familiar with me and, uh, you know, uh, seemed to have been to gigs and stuff before, quite early on in the run, quite early on in one of the shows, they shouted, um, fuck turfs. Uh, And it's a tough one because it's like, well, let me finish because I'm actually not going to say fuck turfs and you might not appreciate what I'm going to say because what I'm because I could have written a show that was just me coming out here and at the beginning of it saying fuck turfs but I don't think that would have achieved anything apart from anything else because I've been saying fuck turfs on Twitter for years and years and what I've learned is that that isn't making the number of turfs diminish that isn't making people not become transphobic that isn't making people not get radicalized I think trying to say to them like what I'm trying to say is in order to not give any ground to the side of transphobia sometimes we on this side we co-sign things that we know aren't true right like we co-sign things that we know aren't true like and and i think to sort of say hey you know life's life's really easy for lesbians now and like 
that Elliot Page thing is a perfect example, right? Because I think I feel like when that happened, I did see a lot of I did see a lot of lesbians who were, you know, very transphobic and like spent a lot of time being transphobic on the internet. I saw a lot of them being like, "This is a real shame," and then I saw people who were just like me having the same feeling, and it's like we should we should talk about that feeling because we can't repress it like if you're telling people like your pain and your trauma that has led you to really identify with this person and and this person being a lesbian in the public eye has been so important for you and now you are you are going to lose that you are going to lose that it doesn't mean that you have the right to it it doesn't mean that Elliot Page has done the wrong thing and like as i say in the show it was never his responsibility to hold all of our stories right that's that happens because we have a lack of representation representation that that means that we we pounce on any tiny bit of representation there is but i think the 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 thing that feels like feels like gnarly is like looking inside ourselves and going those transphobes over there that are saying this is a shame you know that we don't have this person anymore the gnarly feeling is like i feel a bit like that too you know what i mean and and it makes you feel so bad and 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 I think I want I just wanted to I wanted to get into those feelings and try and deconstruct them a bit and kind of say you know it's a, it's maybe okay to feel like that we but we need to think about where it comes from and we need to not stop there you know because I don't stop there in the show I kind of say I had this feeling and then this is what I learned and now this is how I feel about it which is not how I felt about it when I first felt when I first heard about it but I think um deny like denying people their feelings you know that have that have come from a place of real pain and fear i just don't think it's it's not it's not going to achieve what we want because ultimately like you know this is the thing that always i think is kind of crazy about politics is like we talk about eradicating an ideology you know as though as though those people are going to cease to exist you know what i mean i feel like the labor party have done this at the moment with like the Labour Party with the, the sort of left of the Labour Party that's had this purge and there's been all of this talk about how the Labour Party wants to kind of like, you know, eradicate the hard left. And it's like, those people won't go anywhere. They don't disappear. You know what I mean? You can't, you can either change somebody's mind or you can alienate them. Mm. You can't, they don't cease to exist because you stop listening to them. And I think that is like, as we increasingly have this like really individualistic culture that I think social media is massively exacerbated because we can at the end of the day if you say something I don't like I can block you I can dictate the terms of my space that I I hold in the world I can make my bubble really safe and just the people that I agree with but those people are still going to be out there and like they're going to do the same thing so they're going to flock to the people who agree with them and we just get further and further and further apart so I was like yeah, I can. I could do a show where I just stand up and say "fuck turfs" and like a bunch of people would applaud me. And in many ways, that's kind of what I've been doing with music on stage for five years. But it's not making any difference, you know. Thank you. That's a fantastic answer. God bless and you I, trying I, to edit that. No, too. not at all. Not at all. Because I, I appreciate how how carefully you have to choose your words because of the nature, because of. Mm. The discourse being what it is, anyone can clip two seconds from a podcast and go, oh, see, Grace thinks this. And you know what I mean? And then that's exactly the issue that we're talking about, isn't it? You have to yeah. you have to tread so carefully and um, in order not to be like I, I think it's um, like the line, the line I sometimes feel I have to tread is that if I basically believe there's nuance on both sides, 
Mm. I'm not saying, hey, there's good people on both sides, but I sort of am saying that. I'm saying extremists of either kind are probably not going to ch- win anyone's win anyone over. And it's very easy to attack the extremists. The danger then is you could just write me off as well. Centrist dad, Goldsmith over here. And I'm like, well, sure. I yeah. don't, I'm not a centrist, but I, but I do mm. think that in order to, as you say, to win people, to change them, to change their minds. Like, do you, do you think anyone's mind can be changed? That's the other thing. Is it a, mm. is it kind of, do you have any experience of having changed someone's mind? Has anyone written to you and said, I brought my dad and they saw the show and now they get it? Yeah, and, and, I, and I've had that that's with so music great. as well. You that's know. so yeah. great to hear. Um, yeah, <laughs> and I think that's the thing that, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm on Twitter so much and it's so bad for me and I hate it and I'm on it every day. <laughs> and uh, But I think we've forgotten that, like, you know, we we ha- we think we're engaging in a conversation on Twitter, but we're not because we're missing something really important, which is seeing the other person's face. Mm. You know, like actually when you speak to somebody face to face, I've had people come up to me at gigs after playing music gigs and we've had really long conversations about transphobia and they've come away from it at the end of it going, you know, I, I've, I've taken some points from you and I've taken some points from them. And I know that if we'd have done that online, we would have just ended up telling each other to fuck off and then going away and never speaking again and having a bad day and you know and with this show in particular yeah i mean like i we did a a um a work in progress in bath and uh, a friend of mine said wow this you know this woman just said to me on the way out she said i've i've been really vocal about defending women's spaces and uh you know by which she would mean from trans people and she was like, you know, that's really made me, given me a lot to think about. And that's all you can do, man. That's all you yeah. can do, I think. Just try and plant the seed, you know? One of your um, songs that I listened to that I particularly uh, connected with is The Losing Side, <laughs> which I, well, <laughs> that's an interesting laugh of recognition. Okay. <laughs> so uh, I don't know if that's anticipating some suggestion that you're on The Losing Side, but I think for me, like one of the things I struggle with in my own extremely minor activism, like I kind of, someone told me with this podcast, I wield a certain amount of soft power within comedy. And I kind of went, (laughs) oh God, I suppose I do. And I've started to feel more like I have more of a responsibility to do something with that admittedly soft power. But um, I'm sort of, I've been just dabbling slightly with kind of eco activism, you know? Um, Mm. And that song, The Losing Side, really spoke to a fear that I have that has hampered me from activism for a long time, which is the idea of losing. The idea mm. of losing an argument with someone, not because you're wrong, but because they're better at arguing than you are. Mm. Like, I I, I have big problems with anxiety. If I have an altercation with someone on Twitter, I literally won't sleep that night. So I don't Mm. have altercations with people on Twitter. So I opt out and I I enjoy the privilege of being a cis white straight guy that I can just go, well, I'm not going to, I just won't engage with that. Mm. And and I think that for me, that comes from a fear of losing. And what that song did for me was really to kind of innovate me and invigorate me and go, oh yeah, that's the, that's always the danger. And that's why, like, my hat's off so much more to people who do become active for causes that certainly ones I believe in. I'm le- less on the side of people who are activists for causes I disagree with. But presumably, yeah. even they, and this is like really stretching empathy to a breaking point, even they will have thought, should I stand up and say something for what I believe in? 
you know, they will have had that experience as well. So I, I wondered about, I wanted to ask about your kind of introduction into, or your radicalization, if you like, or your introduction into activism, into your, the, the points at which in your life you first stood up and went, no, hang on a minute, fuck this. And, mm. and how you then found other people around you who would support that. Well, I think um, I'm from quite a political family. Um, my uh, parents are both retired now, but my dad was a probation officer and my mum was a social worker. Um, and they really brought us up with like, um, you know, they they were never like, this is who you got to vote for, but they certainly were like, this is how we treat people. Um, you know, and, and I think they they definitely the the sort of values i suppose that they instilled in us were very i suppose socialist ones you know that they they weren't using words like that but they were definitely really strongly believed that you know no one should be left behind and like you know we should work together to protect the most vulnerable people in society and um and you know i think i wasn't I, it's a funny one, really, because I don't. I'm. I. I never know how political I would have been if I had been. You know, this is going to sound quite sarcastic, but I think I do. Like, I respect the white straight cis men who are like trying to do something to, you know, make a world more equal, which is only going to disadvantage them if we if we manage to make a world more equal. I mean, you know, like my politics basically were formed. You know, I've, like I said, I've got political folks, but. My politics basically were formed by the Tories getting in in 2010 and Theresa May being made the Minister for Women Inequalities and realising that she had voted against gay marriage and gay adoption and uh, had voted for Section 28 and had voted against the repeal of Section 28. And that was the first time really, having grown up, you know, quite comfortable under the new Labour years, that was the first time that I really was like, this this materially affects me. Like, mm-hmm. I, And that was it was the first time really that I felt I keenly felt like a minority and I was like, wow, like the the person who's literally in charge of my rights as a gay person is somebody who doesn't believe I should have the same rights as a straight person. And like, really, you know, it's kind of crazy that it took, you know, it took me until I was in my early twenties to kind of feel like that. Mm. Um, But that was the introduction, I suppose, to trying to look at the world through a, you know, prism of, uh, you know, inequality and, and try and be useful to whatever struggles I can be useful to. And, you know, I think then it, you know, it's just been, it's been a great, (laughs) it's been a great decade for politicizing people, I think, because obviously, you know, as a woman, you know, then we had sort of me too. And, you know, to have all that kicking off while like fucking Donald Trump was in power and, um, you know, and, you know, like, like I came to sort of anti-racism much later than I should have done. You know what I mean? I was very blind to my own privilege in the world in that way. And I think I was very much looking through the prism of the ways that I'm oppressed as a gay person, as a woman, um, and not failing to recognize the ways that I'm not oppressed as a white person as, and as a, and you know, an able-bodied person. So, um, yeah, I th- I think, um, performing you know again like with people like Josie and Robin and and Deb Francis White and people who just use their their art for such amazing things I mean the guilty feminist is an incredible is an incredible force for good in the world and I think 
we all could learn an amazing amount from Deborah, I think, you know, because all I've ever done really with my audience is I've just, you know, I get everyone together and I sing songs that we all agree with and hopefully we all feel a little bit comforted to go on. But she really doesn't fuck about, you know. She's like, okay, we've got this audience here, you know, like, who's going to go to Calais? Who's going to take in a refugee? Who's going to, like, direct your energy for this podcast, for this comedy uh, entity into activism in a real serious way? And I think that's amazing. Um but I think, I mean, the losing side just sort of came from this this idea that, you know, I'm 35 now and it was easy when I first got politicised in my early 20s. It was easy when we were doing marches all the time and we were doing demos all the time and, you know, every week or every month there was a new, there was a new um, cause, there was a new struggle, there was a new campaign, there was a new action. It was easy to feel like, no, man, we're on the verge of something, we're going to change the world, you know, this is it. And now I suppose I'm at an age that I'm settling into the knowledge that I'm, I may not see victories in my lifetime for these things. And really, how am I going to deal with that? Because, you know, every election that I've fought since I've been a voting age, I've lost. You know, I campaigned um, quite hard for the Liberal Party in 2017 and 2019, lost really badly. And like a lot of a lot of activists, I think, found those losses, particularly the one in 2019, I was like, I don't know how I can go on fighting in this country that seems overwhelmingly to want the opposite of what I want. And they overwhelmingly seem to be happy with the terrible inequality and corruption that we live with and think of as normal in Britain. And then I sort of, re- you know, I kind of had this epiphany really where I, I, you know, like it sounds like such a cheesy thing to say, but like, you know, fucking hell, like, if the suffragettes had said that, where would we be? Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's not about you, I suppose. And the the realisation, and it's not a realisation that comes naturally to me as a narcissist and an artist and an egotist, <laughs> but the realisation that this is all bigger than you and all you can be is you can just be one bean on the scales and hope that, you know, enough people are going to be beans with you enough to tip it eventually in one direction. But... You know, I wrote that song because I was like, realistically, like, sit with the knowledge that you might never win. And what does that mean for you? Are you going to stop? Can you do this for the rest of your life? Would you rather check out and just go and live comfortably and not care about these things? Like, I'm sure we all have days politically that we're like, fuck, I wish I didn't care about this. I felt like that after the after the election in 2018. I was like, God, it would be so, it would be great, wouldn't it, to just be one of these people who's totally oblivious today and feel like, this is any other day instead of feeling like I feel like the fucking world has ended. I feel like, I feel like, you know, we're in a terrible, terrible position heading in a terrible direction that I don't seem to be able in any way to do anything to mitigate. But actually, you know, the knowledge that there are so many other people who are coming up before, after me, you know, younger than me and they're, and they'll be here after I'm here. And, and I have to try and use my time to do what I can because that's all any of us can do and I think I think for me it was just it was it was a therapeutic and cathartic thing I think to to realize that I had been I'd been looking at politics I think through quite a quite an egotistical self-aggrandizing lens I was thinking about what does this mean for me what does this mean for my life what does it mean for my struggle you know what I mean and actually 
to team sport you know it's not about it's not about you or me it's about us and you know if yeah like sitting down and looking that in the eyes looking in the eyes like if if you knew that you know feminism is never going to win if you knew that the world is going to get more and more and more misogynistic would you stop being a feminist if you think that you're looking at another 50 years of losing obviously i wouldn't so find a way to live with it you know So there's a thing that happens post-Edinburgh to a lot of comedians, and it normally happens round about now, which is mm. that if you are, a, for a club comic, to have done an hour on the heavy bag every night, mm. round about now, between middle of September to middle of October, um, you will be in the middle of a 20-minute set as a comic, as, you know, as a club comic, and suddenly realise that you're a hell of a lot better than you were two months ago, mm. because you've done all this training. Now... What is the the ongoing life of your show, your Edinburgh show, and and if they, if it doesn't have an ongoing life or, or you're you're not sure of that yet, have you noticed? Have you gigged since then in a musical capacity, and have you noticed a difference in how you are on stage, having done an hour, having done a month of hours of stand up? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I I have a music tour starting in um, about ten days, and. Apart from anything else, I I, I feel uh, so. I had this uh, <laughs> this terrible thing happened to me when I arrived in Edinburgh, which is that I had to fly up because I was doing a festival um, in Southampton, and it was the only way I could make it in time for my show. And the airline just like smashed my guitar. Um, and I remember you talking yeah, about that on stage, yes. And so I um, right up until that day, you would have seen the show which is the second the second performance. Um, there was, if I'm honest, there was always a bit of a part of me that was like, if this does all really go wrong, I can just do some songs because who's going to fucking stop me? It's my show. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and then to have the universe sort of forcibly remove my guitar from the equation <laughs> in this quite violent way. Um, but so what it meant was that even at, even at home, I couldn't play the guitar. I didn't play the guitar for a month. It's probably the first time I've not played the guitar for a month in years and years and years and years. Um, so now I actually feel like I'm really raring to go to go to get to get back to singing. Um, but I also think I'm I'm just I was so inspired by by Edinburgh. You know, I saw so many things that I would never I saw so much theatre that I would just never probably in my ordinary life make time for and um it's just so much stuff I just, I just came back from it just like feeling like I was overflowing with ideas just like oh you know brimming over with ideas and having gone into it just going well I'm gonna roll the dice with this festival and see if if this is anything is this anything and then coming away from it being like even by the end of the month I was like I can't wait to get back next year like already thinking like I'm, I'm definitely going to do this again. I'm definitely going to do another comedy show. Um, definitely, you know, like really like that idea of kind of separating out these two elements of my, what I do, you know what I mean? And rather than kind of just being this musician who really likes making people laugh in between songs, maybe I can actually have sort of two strains to what I do and, and Edinburgh feels like a really good place for it. So um, I feel like buzzing with, with ideas at the moment and like creativity and like, who knows if it's if any of it's funny, but um, it'll probably get some of an airing on the road, I suppose. 
Thank you. I've got a couple of quick audience questions. Um, mm. we, I'm going to thank Mark Saltvite and Casey Lucas because I think we've covered the things that they asked. Um, but we have a question from Sarah Mihag, which is, it seemed that before doing the stand-up show, Grace had carefully considered the vulnerability and power of not using music during her stand-up. I think we've covered that. But was there any unexpected differences in the impact of performing stand-up? Yeah, I think um, this is going to sound quite uh, bad. <laughs> trying to think of the right word. This is going to sound quite um, uh, um, sort of dogmatic. Um, I think that uh, I liked, in a strange way, I liked the formality of the setting of comedy. And I liked how people... Because when I do a gig, people heckle, particularly because I speak in between songs and people, you know, I don't want to sort of, like, <laughs> show you show show people, like, you know, too much be behind the curtain. But, like, I think people, if they've never seen me do a gig before, they come and they probably think, because of the delivery, they think... Um, this is all off the cuff, right? You know mm. what I mean? These these sure. stories and these jokes, this is all very informal. So often they'll kind of, they'll shout back and they'll, you know, and they'll huck and stuff. And um, and I, re I actually really liked, I really liked holding the space. It just makes it sound like I like the sound of my own voice, but I just liked, <laughs> I just liked holding the space in a much more formal setting. I liked kind of coming out and being like, you know, because my, my venue is sort of like raked in black box theatre style. And uh, and I liked just kind of going. Again, I think the the temptation with music is like you sing a line, even if it is really impactful, it's gone, you know, because then you're on to the next thing, you're on to the next song, you're on to the next line. And I think again, it's just that similar thing to what I was saying about Luke, and that 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 wisdom that he imparted to me was like, I did find I did find some of the. I felt more listened to in some ways. That sounds like a strange thing to say, but, you know, I feel so consumed when I do a music show with... I get so in my head about whether or not people are getting what they came to get from it. And that's why, like I said, I feel completely and utterly compelled to sing certain songs, even if I don't feel like doing them that night, you know, even if I've done them a thousand times, I'm like, well, this is, this is what people n need. And I think to do something completely untested and just, I suppose I just really, I was humbled by the faith. I think that people sh like sh showed me in coming and being like, we're just going to listen to you for an hour. We have no expectations. We don't know what it's going to be. We know that there's not going to be any sing-alongs. We know, you know, you're not going to do anything we've heard before and we're open to listening. And I think it's, I think it was, really powerful to have that experience for me that is a great answer thank you sarah for that excellent question that led us to that point and it also makes me think that um what would be fun i'm familiar with as we all are from the idea of music gigs where people shout out requests mm. perhaps in future grace petrie gigs people could shout out opportunities to let you off the hook <laughs> feel free not to play black tie they could shout <laughs> I, I love it but it's, it's really it's ultimately it's up to you <laughs> do whatever you want <laughs> uh last question are you happy I'm happier than I've ever been at the moment, I think, yeah. I really, I felt, um, 
I, f- I felt like I was losing my mind when I was having this disconnection feeling from music. And I was, re- and you know, it's all I've ever wanted to do. I spent two years being told I couldn't do it. And then to come back after the pandemic and feel like, oh, I feel like maybe the spark has gone for this. I was really scared about it. And I was really like, well, what else am I going to do? I've ne- I'm not qualified to do anything else. I've never done anything else, never envisaged doing anything else. And then I feel like it feels so exciting to be 15 years into a career that I feel quite established in to suddenly kind of go, oh, I feel like, I feel like I found another floor of my house, you know, that I didn't know was there. And now there's just this world that might be open to me. And it feels like, it feels like, it feels like the, I mean, I've, I'm really conscious of how lucky I am to have gone about it this way because mm. I can explore comedy as this total newbie, but also I don't, I'm not 18 and I don't have to come up through the through the club circuit and like I don't have to have all the ho- horrible experiences of like paying dues because I kind of have paid my dues you know throughout my 20s so it just feels like I just have this gorgeous limitless playground of of like creativity that's a whole world that I never kind of knew was open to me and it feels like the luckiest thing in the world to be 35 and feel like that that's such a great answer thank you Grace <laughs> thank you So that was Grace Petrie. Thank you so much to Grace for coming on to the show. Thanks to you for listening and sharing the show with people you think will be excited about it. Thank you uh, for your iTunes reviews, particularly if you're not in the UK, but also if you are. Um, And thank you for sort of favouriting or subscribing to the show or clicking the little heart button if you're on Spotify. I listen to most of my podcasts on Spotify now. Um, And uh, it's, it's... I was listening on CastBox for ages... And then I just found that I I kept tripping me up, but I haven't got as far as switching all of the podcasts I was listening to from CastBox to Spotify. So now, tell you what I'm listening to on Spotify is um, The Rest is Politics. Uh, That I'm really, really enjoying, um, as well as, of course, Boars, Gore and Swords, which is the only mainstay uh, podcast I've been listening to for years, particularly now that House of the Dragon's kicking off. And what am I doing? I'm suddenly giving loads of other podcasters a shout-out. Well, why not a Tide rises all ears so um thank you to grace thank you to you thank you to nathan wood for producing the show to moz our new and excellent logger um and uh what will we do i've got it's it's classic post amble time i've got to leave the house um so i'm going to try if you're around for the post amble i'll explain what i'm going to attempt to do in the post amble in just a second uh, however, for now, thank you very much. Go to comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. And I tell you what, just before we get to the post-amble, if you go to comedianscomedian.com slash unmissable, I should have said this in the middle bit, but I forgot. I will next time. Comedianscomedian.com slash unmissable. There's a little form there you can fill in to tell me all about your favourite moments of the podcast. I am embarked on a huge project that is podcast related. I may as well tell you I'm writing a book. I'm not promising to finish writing a book, but I am promising that I have started writing a book and it's going to be all things to all people unless I can wrangle it into some version of itself that makes sense. But with 10 years worth of content, people have already been pointing out things, oh, I hope you mentioned that bit. And I'm going, oh God, I've forgotten all about that bit. I can't listen back to over... 
I mean, it's got to be 700 hours, what, 900 hours if you include all the extras? Um, so if you have a favourite bit, go to comedianscomedian.com slash unmissable, and it's a place where you can say, hey, as someone kindly has already, um, hey, do you remember when um, uh, Matt Ewins talked about call forwards to improve a bit of material later by referring to it earlier so that the end bit sounds cleverer? It's deeper than that, but not a lot deeper great bit i'd forgotten i can put that in a bit of the book but i'm also interested as well as parts of the book which are about craft and technique i'm really interested in the mindset the head game anytime me or my guests have spoken about coping with the project of comedy um, as well as all the craft of comedy stuff that i'm particularly fascinated with thought experiments ways of thinking about things so if there are any bits i mean you'll have heard this shouted out at the beginning of the show and it is real now that tiny little 15 second trailer it's all happening gotta stop pretending it isn't happening i'm just not promising to finish it all right that seems fair um any stuff like that go to comedianscomedian.com slash unmissable and you can prod me and remind me of uh, of things i should include that's that you can follow me at uh, uh what can you follow me at oh Stuart goldsmith comedy on tiktok for some reason um and instagram and you can uh, go to linktree slash Stuart goldsmith to see everything else i'm up to or go to stuartgoldsmith.com that will do i will post amble at you in just a second so here it is um I wasn't planning to talk about the book. I wasn't planning in this episode to mention the book, but people have already been in touch with me to go, I hear you're writing a book ever since I accidentally soft-launched it on LinkedIn. Not the thing I was going to do. I'm very... Is, is it pathetic, the extent to which I'm saying, I don't promise to finish it. I just... It's one of those things. It's like if you've auditioned for Star Wars, you don't want to go around telling everyone you've auditioned for Star Wars. You want to keep it secret in case it doesn't happen. Well, I sort of felt like that about this, but it's too late now. I've downloaded Scrivener and I've spent, I've genuinely, probably for the first time in my life, spent an hour and a half learning the tutorial, like following the tutorial for a thing. That's incredibly useful for writing stuff. Should have known about that a while ago. Um, and I've set myself a little target and I'm going to try and chunk it out like I've been doing with the running. You know the way I feel about the running. I've, um, uh, the running, this running that we do, the running. Um, that by putting the exercise into little tiny 20 minute bits every single day you just get on with it and then you turn around and you go oh god I'm a runner that's what happened to me I'm trying to do the same thing with the book um so I'm doing that I've got lots of stuff I still don't know whether I mean I've got stuff coming out my ears I don't know whether it's it could be my guide to comedy and doing comedy based on the interviews but I want it to be something as well as that I want it to also be my guide to coping with stuff because those are my uh, twin obsessions are they not so that's what it's going to be about um I I do I'm not saying that I don't promise to finish it I hope I finish it I shouldn't be I should just delete this I don't want to oh anyway here's the that's where I'm that's where that is (laughs) but it's enjoyable I feel good here's the other thing It is not a good idea for me to do an online therapy session. Yes, I've gone back. Yes, I'm fine with it. Um, Just before, like, or on the same day even as recording these blurbs, because the temptation to try and share the latest big revelation I've had is huge. I'm going to do it anyway now, though, because I... Because it's not a huge revelation. Well, it was part of one, but it's that... The thing I want to talk about is something I just expressed for the first time whilst in an online therapy session. It isn't the therapy I just did. Here's the thing I want to express. I'm going to say this out loud and respond to it if you like. If you think it's bollocks or if you agree with it, tell me. 
You know I've always been struggling with whether I'm an artist or an entertainer. I asked people that and I settled a few years ago on the idea that I am a bad artist and that felt like quite a fun, self-deprecating thing to say that I never used to notice. Oh, I keep broadcasting to hundreds of thousands of people. <laughs> what is what is an apparent inability to hold a camera lens? What is an apparent lack of self-belief? And it isn't self-belief. I feel like I've earned the right to cheerfully call myself a bad artist. But nonetheless... The art, the stuff, is up there. It's in the ether. It's, it's, it's floating around and not necessarily visible. And the job, I think, this is the new theory, the job of artists is simply to be a tube. You just have to be a conduit to the stuff. The stuff's there. You don't have to be the stuff. You don't have to be art. You don't have to embody. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to go, I, myself, this performance is perfect art. You simply need to create the conditions through which you, as artist, can be a tube to... For some reason, I'm over-pronouncing tube. Um, whereby the stuff gets to the audience. Is that a theory? I feel like it's the beginnings of a theory. Put that in your tube and smoke it, and I'll speak to you later. Later. <laughs>